a quick word from our sponsor today. Where do I start? Help desk software, payment software, email marketing tools, CMS and blogging tools, SEO tools, deal management tracking, pipeline tracking. You do not need more tools to get more out of your business. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform is the ultimate business hack for all your customer-facing teams. You can create best-in-class campaigns and automate outreach with workflows that will generate more qualified leads for your business. HubSpot will also keep track of every prospect with category-leading pipeline management so you can close more deals. Finally, you can use powerful AI chatbots and develop a knowledge base to scale your support. HubSpot is built to deliver results, drive more revenue, and to help your business grow faster than you ever thought was possible. Try it for yourself today at HubSpot.com. Again, go check out HubSpot.com today. Hello, and welcome to another episode of All the Hacks, a show about upgrading your life, money, and travel, all while spending less and saving more. I'm your host, Chris Hutchins, and I am excited to have you on my journey to find all the hacks. And today we're talking to Paula Pan, the founder and creator of Afford Anything, where she runs an award-winning personal finance website, a monthly newsletter with almost 100,000 subscribers, a top 50 podcast. She has an amazing story starting her career as a journalist, making only $21,000 in building up her business and a portfolio of rental properties from scratch. We'll talk about breaking free from a traditional nine to five job. We'll talk about learning to value your time, taking many retirements throughout your life, setting up streams of passive income, and how life is just one big set of trade-offs that allow you to afford anything you want. And at the end, I'll make sure to get some of Paula's favorite hacks. So let's jump in. Well, after I remind you that... Chris Hutchins works at Wealthfront. All opinions expressed by Chris and his guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Wealthfront. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Paula, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, so I have to start with Afford Anything. So to mm. some, I think it could sound like a get-rich-quick infomercial. I right. know it's so much more than that. Can you let people know what you mean when you say you can afford anything? Sure. The whole philosophy behind Afford Anything is that you can afford anything but not everything. So every choice that you make is a trade-off against something else. And that doesn't just apply to your money. That applies to any limited resource that you need to manage, like your time, your focus, your energy, your attention. Fundamentally, the concept of afford anything is the concept of opportunity costs. It's so easy to fall into the trap of thinking that life is an endless series of ands, when in fact, life is a series of ors. And are there specific things you think most people get wrong when they think about all of these trade-offs? Oh, God, people do so much wrong. Where do I even begin? In terms of spending the money that you currently have, we'll start there. People often will, when they want to cut back on their spending, they chase the discretionary items which provide a psychological victory of easy wins, but don't actually move the needle. So if you, for example, buy a cheap beer instead of a $14 martini, you can pat yourself on the back for the fact that you spent only three three bucks on the beer instead of 14 on the martini, right? But what you're doing in that one in that one instance, in that isolated incident, is you're giving yourself a, a veneer or a facade of having made a frugal decision without actually doing something substantive that would move the needle in the long run. Right. 
if you were to put that same level of cognitive effort into, let's say, putting more effort into a search for your next apartment so that you are renting something that is $350 a month cheaper with a similar square footage. Or if you were to put that same level of effort into being more aggressive about finding discounts on the types of insurances that you have, for example, right? The non-sexy stuff. If you were to put that same level of effort into weatherproofing your home, uh, you know, weather stripping and caulk, like that sort of thing actually moves the needle, but it doesn't provide the psychological victory. And so much of the time we're chasing the buzz, we're chasing the dopamine hit rather than the efficacy. Yeah, I've heard you call this fake frugality at times, and it's something that I've definitely struggled with. Is there a way that you would recommend people, myself included, get over it? Because sometimes it's not as easy as just saying, well, yeah, of course it makes more rational sense to spend time on these big decisions. But I feel like saving money and optimizing at every point is so ingrained in my being that it's hard to not compare the prices of the beers at a restaurant and and think, oh, maybe I should get the $7 one instead of the $9 one and save a couple dollars, even though it doesn't move the needle. Exactly. Exactly. It's difficult to do. I mean, fundamentally, you're asking a question about self-awareness, right? And it's 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 difficult. And actually, really, what you're asking is how to translate self-awareness into action, like how to bridge the the awareness action gap, which is the question that has plagued mankind since the dawn of history. So I don't expect us to have it solved by lunch. But where I would start <clears throat> would be in terms of saving money to focus on the big three, housing, transportation, and food. Those are the areas where you're likely to have the biggest wins. And in fact, if we want to extend that to the big four, it would be housing, transportation, food, taxes, right? If you can just nail those four things, you can get a lot of stuff wrong as long as you get those four things right. Beyond that, there's also, I think for most of the people who are listening to this podcast, a very strong argument that perhaps saving money is not the side of the spectrum that they should be focused on. One of the philosophies that I like to teach is a philosophy called grow the gap. And what grow the gap means is that what we ultimately care about is the gap between what you earn and what you spend. And there are only two ways to grow that gap. You can either earn more, you can spend less, or you can do a combination of the two. And I would venture to say that the majority of people who are listening to this podcast are probably educated enough, skilled enough, experienced enough that their bigger win could be found on the earning side of that equation. Yeah, I think I've heard a lot of people say there's a lot more upside to earning than downside to cutting costs because most people can't spend an unlimited amount of money, though I've seen people try. You can't shrink your way to greatness. I know. And, And I think sometimes if you're really not spending mindfully, there might be a lot of opportunity to cut there. But once you've done that, there's not that much more to go. And and there's a lot more creativity that you can apply towards earning more. And I know you talk a lot about financial freedom. How do you think that applies to this equation of earning more, having to work to make money and, and cut costs? So as I see it, financial freedom gives you the ability to no longer have to do something purely for the paycheck and gives you the ability to choose the type of work that you do so that you can do the work that is most aligned with your skills, your talents, and what the world needs. For all of us, 
there was a time in our lives where we had to do stuff for a paycheck. I mean, I was 15 when I got my first job at the drive-thru of a McDonald's, right? Like m- the vast majority of us, unless you come from a very wealthy family, there's a time in your life, even if it's high school, college, maybe your early 20s, where there's just stuff that you have to do. Y- you got to do what you got to do, right? Like you you do what you need to in order to pay the bills. You do what you need to in order to survive. Financial independence, as I see it, is building enough of a safety net such that your basic survival is taken care of. That doesn't necessarily mean that you are quote unquote retired, as you call it, the cessation of work, right? Which is a beautiful way of describing it. It is not the cessation of income producing activity. It is simply building enough of a safety net that if everything goes to hell, you know that you can survive, you know that you can be okay, when you have that confidence, when you have that safety net built underneath you, then you no longer have to worry about keeping the lights on and you're free to take bigger risks. I, I know you talk a lot about <clears throat> breaking free from this kind of nine to five life where you're working for 40 years straight, getting a couple weeks of vacation. Do you think that you can obtain this kind of freedom that lets you you know, live life on your own terms while you're still working a job for someone else? Or do you have to work for yourself to do this? Oh, no, you don't have to work for yourself. You mean in order to reach financial independence? Yeah, and, and and have that freedom. You don't have to work for yourself in order to do it. I think oftentimes when, when even when I talk about escaping the nine to five, the nine to five is a metaphor, right? The nine to five, or when I talk about escaping the cubicle, or, you know, those are metaphors for sucky jobs that you're in, not because you want to be in them, but because you feel like you have to in order to pay the bills. I have no objection to working your dream job at a company or a nonprofit or some sort of enterprise that genuinely thrills you and makes optimum use of your talent and time and skills. You know, something where you know that you are building a legacy and you know that you are leaving an asset behind and like that type of work, the ownership is less important than whether or not you are achieving autonomy, mastery, and purpose through the work that you do. And what research shows is that if you have that sense of autonomy, mastery, and purpose in your work, then you are highly likely to enjoy that form of work. And so when I talk about escaping the nine to five, I'm using nine to five as a metaphor for those jobs that don't give you proper autonomy Perhaps they micromanage you. They don't give you mastery. Perhaps they're a a poor fit for your skill set and they don't give you a sense of purpose. You know, you're not in alignment with the type of legacy that you want to be leaving behind. Yeah, I think I'm fortunate that after many years of discovery and, and searching, I found something where I actually really enjoy working for someone else and fulfilling autonomy, mastery and purpose. And I but I know it seems to be and and this is unfortunate, but the norm when I talk to people is that they haven't found a job that they all love in that way. And that working for yourself is something so many people seem to aspire to. So what did, what advice would you give to someone who's at a job that kind of falls into that metaphor of, of a nine to five, something they're not loving and fulfilled by? If the goal is to grow a sufficient safety net such that they then have more options, more flexibility, the first thing that I would ask that person is, what is the most effective way for you to grow that gap, grow the gap between what you earn and what you spend? 
Now, for some people, particularly if you're already a high income earner and you live in a large home, you drive a newer car, if there's obvious low hanging fruit that you can cut from your lifestyle, then cut the low hanging fruit first because it does give you that initial win. And that initial win does provide that psychological motivation to continue on the path. So particularly for high income earners, I would start with downsizing to a less expensive home, downsizing to vehicles or transportation that is functional rather than luxurious. I would start there. Once that's done, I would not endlessly iterate that because that I think is where a lot of people go wrong, where they get so caught up in over-optimizing that they, they, you know, when you hit the point where you're like unscrewing the oven light to save like, you know, two cents worth of electricity, you've gone, you've gone too far. Before (laughs) that, you've gone too far also. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And I use that example because that's literally an example that I read on a website once. The same, same person who also recommended tearing dryer sheets in half in order to, to make a box go twice as far. You know, like when, when you're bisecting your dryer sheet, you know, you, you've crossed the line. So don't become obsessive about extreme frugality. Pick the low-hanging fruit and then shift your focus and find a way that you can earn more. Now, depending on the career that you're currently in, this could come in three different forms. Either you look for a promotion in your current line of work whether that means getting promoted in your own company or creating a bidding war amongst many employers so that, you know, making a lateral move or, or even a vertical move into another company, right? So it could be a promotion within your own line of work. That's option number one. It could be retraining into a career change and retraining into a different line of work, ideally without going to grad school or without going back to grad school. And the reason that I say ideally without grad school, it's not because of grad school itself, it's because of student debt avoidance, right? So retraining with a new skill set in a way that does not incur student debt, that would be option number two. Or starting some type of entrepreneurial enterprise, some sort of side hustle, that would be option number three. So depending on your current line of work, one of those three options would be ideal for you. And Which one is right for you depends on what you're doing. If you're an anesthesiologist, obviously picking up a few extra shifts at the hospital is going to be a much better use of your time than selling candles on Etsy, right? So this one size fits all that a lot of personal finance gurus out there espouse where they're like, everybody should start a side hustle is far too much of a blanket statement. Whether it's researching investments, comparing performance, trying to read up on the news, or looking into a company's financial statements, it seems like there is an unlimited number of places to get your information, but my go-to site for all things investing is actually the same site I've been using for over a decade. It keeps getting better and better and also happens to be our sponsor today, Yahoo Finance. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just getting started, Yahoo Finance has all the tools and data you need in one place. Well, actually two places because they also have a great mobile app. You'll get a holistic view of the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. It's probably why they've been trusted for over 25 years and by over 90 million users each month who are working towards their own financial success. 
So for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind so many great investors, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. I love helping you answer all the toughest questions about life, money, and so much more, but sometimes it's helpful to talk to other people in your situation, which actually gets harder as you build your wealth. So I want to introduce you to today's sponsor, Long Angle. Long Angle is a community of high net worth individuals with backgrounds in everything from technology, finance, medicine, to real estate, law, manufacturing, and more. I'm a member of Long Angle. I've loved being a part of the community, and I've even had one of the founders, Tad Fallows, join me on all the hacks in episode 87 to talk about alternative investments. Now, the majority of Long Angle members are first-generation wealth, young, highly successful individuals who join the community to share knowledge and learn from each other in a confidential, unbiased setting. On top of that, members also get access to some unique private market investment opportunities. Like I said, I'm a member and I've gotten so much value from the community because you're getting advice and feedback from people in a similar situation to you on everything from your investment portfolio to your children's education to finding a concierge doctor. So many of these conversations aren't happening anywhere else online. So if you have more than 2.2 million in investable assets, which is their minimum for membership, I encourage you to check out Long Angle and it's totally free to join. Just go to longangle.com to learn more, and if you choose to apply, be sure to let them know you heard about it here. Again, that's longangle, A-N-G-L-E dot com. Yeah, so we had uh, Nick Loper on the show from Side Hustle mm-hmm. Nation, and we talked a lot about some of the side hustles you can do to earn some extra income, but I don't think we spend as much time on how to transition side hustles into working for yourself and how to actually Mm. start a business. And I know that's something you've done. That's something you've talked about. You've interviewed lots of people. When someone kind of has that idea in their mind of, I think I want to work for myself at some point. Do you have a plan that you would share with them or, or a path or a process that someone should go through to try to make that happen? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, when we talk about the world of side hustles, I want to distinguish between two forms of side hustles. First, you've got what I refer to as gig economy side hustles, things like driving for Uber, driving for DoorDash, walking dogs. This is the low-hanging fruit of side hustles because you can start earning money immediately, but you're fundamentally not really growing your own business, right? You are fundamentally a dog walker on Rover or a driver for Uber. Great if you need a quick hit of cash, but it's not something that's, I think, scalable for the long term. So I want to distinguish between that gig economy form of side hustle versus starting your own business. And when you start your own business, you can either sell a service or sell a product. A lot of people start as service providers because there's a low cost of capital in doing so. And, you know, so for example, perhaps you have a skill that you can sell as a freelancer, right? Whether that skill is writing, web design, coding, logo design, whatever that skill may be. Perhaps there's a skill that you can sell as a freelancer or as a consultant. That is a low cost of capital way to start. And a lot of people begin there and that will allow you to become self-employed. But there's a distinction between being self-employed versus being an entrepreneur. And if you do your job well and you are successful at selling the service that you are offering, 
there will eventually come a point where you have to make the decision, do I want to become an agency, meaning do I want to be an, an agency that sells this service, or do I want to transition into product development and sales? And by the time that happens, you will be far enough into self-employment, you will be far enough into selling the service that you offer that I think you'll have a clear idea of which of the two paths you want to go in. I'll give you an example from my own life. So I used to be a newspaper reporter. I made $21,000 a year and and those are $2,005, right? That's not like in 1942, I made 21,000. So I, I graduated from college, 2005. I first job out of school, I made $21,000 a year as an entry-level newspaper reporter. I worked at that newspaper for three years. And at the time that I quit, my ending salary was $31,000 per year. So that is what my honors diploma got me. And 2008, I was like the last person to get the memo that print newspapers are not the way of the future. I was going to conferences and everyone at newspaper conferences back in 2008, like People were showing photos of Craig Newmark, I think, the guy who invented Craigslist. People would show his photos on slide decks and they'd be like, this guy killed newspapers. You know, this guy destroyed classified ad revenue. And so it was clear that the the whole industry was collapsing. A lot of major newspapers were shutting down. McClatchy was on a hiring freeze. The Seattle Post-Intelligencer had gone to online only, I believe. Rocky Mountain News shut down. So it was clear to me that the future was going to be freelance and online. And so my thinking in 2008 was I've got to transition into being an independent journalist. I need to be freelance. I need to be online. I wasn't thinking about starting a business. I wasn't yet aware that there was a distinction between self-employment and entrepreneurship. And so my thought process at the time was simply, can I create a job for myself? And so I began my career as a freelance personal finance writer, freelance personal finance journalist. I specialized in that niche knowing that like specializing in a niche would be the key to getting freelance gigs. And I did that for a number of years. And I eventually just hit the point where the work that I was getting wasn't just coming from news organizations. A lot of it was coming from fintech companies because fintech companies needed content on their websites and they didn't necessarily have enough staffing to have an in-house content creator And so they would have some harried, overworked marketing person who would contract with me to write articles. So I began doing that. And then I realized that this harried, overworked marketing person didn't really have the bandwidth to even manage me. And so then I just scaled up and was like, tell you what, I will provide turnkey content management services. And I became an agency and I started hiring writers under me and became content management for hire for certified financial planners, for accountants, for small fintech companies. This was maybe 2012, 2013. And that was the transition from self-employment to entrepreneurship. And it happened very organically. There was never a plan. It was never a goal. I just sort of kept seeing where the needs were and what the pain points were in the market and then continually responded to those. And then in parallel, I was also building out Afford Anything and I was growing this audience at Afford Anything and this audience kept asking me questions about investing, specifically real estate investing, because I was doing that with the money that I was making. And so there were enough questions coming from the Afford Anything audience that it was clear that there was demand for an online course. And I hit the point where I was like, I can't do both. I can't be a service agency and also develop a product. I'm going to have to do one of the two. 
And neither of these are built out enough that I could sell either company. So one of them, I'm just going to have to pull the plug on. And that was terrifying to grow a six-figure business and then just pull the plug on it was like absolutely terrifying. But I pulled the plug on the service agency, cut all of that, and went entirely into product development and and built this course for Afford Anything. And and I assume the course when you first made that decision wasn't already generating six figures that it could easily replace the service business. Is that fair? Correct. Correct. Yeah, it was not. So I, I feel like that decision might be very similar to the decision of many people who are working at a six-figure job and thinking about a business they could run, thinking about starting something on their own, and are terrified with the idea of basically losing their income and starting something and taking a risk. And so is there anything you learned from going through that that you would tell someone facing that same kind of terrifying decision of of giving up the, the known for the higher upside, more enjoyment unknown? Yeah, absolutely. So I was absolutely terrified and I probably delayed making that transition by a a year longer than I should have. What gave me a lot of peace was knowing that if I could do it once, I could do it again. So I wanted to take this this moonshot. I wanted to see if I could grow afford anything to become as big as it could be. And I knew that if it flopped, if it didn't work out, I had already grown a six-figure service business once. There's nothing stopping me from being able to do it again. I was talking to a friend uh, who worked at Google and they were considering whether they left to start a business on the side. And I gave them kind of a similar piece of advice, which was, do you think that if this didn't work and you went back, you could get hired again? And their answer was like, of course, like everyone is trying to hire talented people. My performance reviews have been great. I'm sure that any year if I left this job and things didn't work out and I reached out to my manager and said, hey, could I come back? They would absolutely say yes. And what it did was it changed the perspective of it's not giving up my career to go try something. It's taking a year off and knowing that the downside isn't a career. It's however many months of income I would lose by taking this risk. And so they'd saved enough money that you know they could do that. And they said, okay, I'm going to take a year off. And if it doesn't work, I might know after three months. I might know after six months. So it's a relatively low risk. And some companies, if you're transparent, might even just let you take a sabbatical. You might not even have to leave to go explore this if you work in a field where, you know, your services are so in demand that companies would kind of do all kinds of things to try to make sure that they accommodate you. So you can do this even if you've never started a business before, you've got hired before. So it, it could be that your that is your opportunity cost as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and what I love about the the opportunity cost, as you just described, when you have a runway, then fundamentally, the, the only thing that you're risking is that you are living more frugally than you otherwise would be. And when that's the worst case scenario, that's not that bad. No, especially if you're doing something you're passionate about. It is so hard if you're working a job you hate to maybe give up a few of the joys you have in life. But if Mm -hmm. you're giving up the job you hate to go do something you're incredibly passionate about, and every day you're excited to be doing what you're doing, it's way easier to maybe give up the vacation that year or a nicer car because you have this thing you're so passionate about to focus on. And so I think it's easier to be frugal in your life when you're doing it because you get to do something that fulfills you more. Exactly. Exactly. 
So one of the things you mentioned uh, was that you had started investing in real estate. And earlier, we talked about how you could get a promotion, you could find a new career, you could start a business or generate your own income. We didn't talk much about the idea of passive income, but Mm -hmm. I know you sometimes talk about the long game, about ways that you can start to apply your time, skills, and money towards generating kind of really sustaining long-term financial returns. What do you think about passive income versus active income, and, and should everyone be focused on it to some extent? So the first thing that I would say about passive income is I want to emphasize that passive income is not a euphemism for free money. Passive income, or its its synonym residual income, is front-loading the workload. And it refers to the type of income that you make from any project in which you do a ton of work up front so that you can enjoy that that residual stream later. That could be writing a piece of software or a book or a piece of music that provides royalties. That could be building building out a YouTube channel or a website or a, a podcast where you're still monetizing the back catalog, making money off of episodes that you created or articles that you created years ago, right? It could be buying rental properties where you front load that workload of searching for the property, renovating it, getting it rent ready for those first tenants, finding a great property manager, building out the systems and putting that in place. Um, that is another example of passive or residual income. But I do think it's important to emphasize that it is it is in no way a euphemism for free money and building out streams of passive income requires a significant amount of work. That said, what I love about passive income is that It separates time from money. So much of the time, we frame money in the context of time. So we might say, I charge X per hour, or he or she makes Y per year. And so this link between time and money is is very held together in our minds. And what I think is beautiful about passive income is that it destroys that link and allows money to flow in independent of our input of time. Yeah. And I think if you're able to set those streams of income up, then it makes it easier to have the flexibility to maybe pursue a new business down the road. Obviously, if the business is the passive income, then then that's a little different. But one of the forms of passive income I know you're passionate about, or, or at least you've spent a lot of time on, is rental properties. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the interesting characteristics of it is that Unlike maybe writing a piece of software or creating a piece of music, it's a bit more accessible in that Mm. if you don't know an instrument or you aren't able to write software, those other ones are pretty difficult. Not that you can't learn and train up, but I think they feel less approachable. But buying rental properties is something that I think many people see as much more approachable. Do you think that it could be something as a, a first step in passive income for almost anyone or do you recommend it for certain types of people? I would say that the first thing is that you have to actually want to do it. Right now, rental properties have enough buzz that there are people who are FOMOing into it, doing it because everyone else on the internet is. And if that's your motivation, then that's the wrong reason to do it. And in any endeavor that you pursue, whether it's your career, your investments, your relationships, like there will be tough times. And If you don't actually want it in the first place, you're not going to be able to hang on through the tough times. 
So don't invest in rental properties unless your desire to do so is genuine. That's the first thing I'd say to anyone. That being said, I do believe that if the desire is genuine, any middle-class person in the United States would be able to do it. You don't need to be handy. You don't need to live in a low-cost-of-living area. I'm a, a firm believer in investing out of state for people who live in high cost areas. In fact, I prefer out of state investing over local investing for a variety of reasons. The big one being that it forces you to treat it like a business, forces you to develop systems, it forces you to build a team. You can't just swing by and replace the batteries and the smoke alarm. And so the the forcing function of living far away from your properties, I think, it absolves you from the need to be handy, forces you to treat it like a business and gives a lot of geographic arbitrage power to people who are high-income earners living in high-cost city- cities. I know you have a course that talks a lot about getting into this, and we'll definitely link to that course in the show notes for people who are interested. But at a high level, is there anything you would recommend someone do to start to say, am I passionate about this? Can I make this work? Do I have enough money saved? Are there a few criteria you'd check off that would make someone a good fit for buying a rental property? Well, if you have credit card debt, uh, pay off the credit card debt first. Don't do anything until you've done that first. Now, that doesn't apply to student loans. It doesn't apply to, of course, if you have a primary residence mortgage. If you've got that the lower interest, single digit interest rate debt, I'm less concerned about that. But certainly pay off your credit cards. Make sure that you have an adequate emergency fund. Take care of those financial basics first. And if you are offered a 401k match or a 403b match at work, make sure that you're contributing enough to your retirement accounts that you're at least getting that match. So those are the first steps. That's what I refer to as financial basics. After those financial basics are taken care of, then the world is your oyster in terms of what types of investments you want to go into. And if your interest is going into rental properties, then that then it is time to dive in and learn about it. I think the mistake that a lot of people make is they they go in unknowingly. They make assumptions like they assume that as long as the rent covers the mortgage, they'll be okay. That's one of the worst beginner assumptions that you can make. And so a lot of people, because they, uh, I call this the error of the apparent similar, where because they have experience doing something at the amateur level, they believe that they can do it at the professional level. You know, just because you can hit a ball around a tennis court does not mean that you have the skill set of a Wimbledon player. Just because you can make dinner for yourself at home it does not mean that you have the skill set of Gordon Ramsay, right? And so just because you've been able to purchase a personal residence for yourself does not mean you know how to look for properties, how to analyze properties, how to uh, think about renovating properties. It doesn't mean that you know how to think like an investor. And the mistake that a lot of people make is that because they've done this at, at a personal level, they believe that they know how to do it at a professional level. And that's the reason why I think it's it's so important to learn how to properly analyze, find, finance, and make renovation decisions. I don't mean pick up the hammer yourself. I mean, create a scope of work. How to do that from the lens of an investor. And when you got started, you didn't know any of this. How nope. did you learn all of it? It was a combination of trial and error, reading as many books as I could get my hands on and going to investor meetup after investor meetup after investor meetup, you know, like repeated exposure to the point where I could eventually separate the wheat from the chaff, like the signal from the noise. The 
unfortunate reality in the world of real estate is that there are a lot of what I call like the scamber gurus, you know, lamber gurus driving scamberginis. You know, you have a lot of ego in real estate. You have a lot of people who are flashy and they are promoting high risk, high leverage strategies. And frankly, I think a lot of what they're saying is dangerous. And they say it because they have a vested interest in selling their idea to you. When you think about the world of real estate, most of the people that you deal with, real estate agents, lenders, these people don't get paid until you make a purchase. And so their incentive structure is to get you to buy. And oftentimes they will not give you the full picture. They, they're not fiduciaries in your corner. And so I think what's unfortunate about the world of real estate is that it's so easy to be led astray. And oftentimes the people who are led astray are being led astray with leverage, meaning the magnitude of your mistake is amplified. I got lucky in that when I started, I didn't know what I was doing and happened to make good decisions, but it it was a roll of the dice and easily could have gone the other way. I guess that's why I'm such an advocate for people taking the time, and I don't want people to get stuck in analysis paralysis, but I do feel that it's it's prudent to take the time to do your due diligence before you jump in because I didn't do that. And it is only by the grace of God that I happened to get lucky. And the fact that I did not do my proper due diligence before getting started happened to work out for me, not through any skill of my own, but through sheer luck. I'm very glad that you were lucky for Mm -hmm. your sake and for the sake that you can now share all this with us. I know a lot of people just kind of grew up with that belief that owning real estate is really important. And in today's age, I know a lot of people also love the idea of flexibility and not necessarily being tied down. So owning a rental property, I see people often coming at it because they say, well, I'm not ready to buy a house where I live. Maybe it's too expensive. Maybe I want the flexibility, but also, you know, I want to own property, so I should get a rental property. And you know, if that evolves to a true passion, I think that can be a, a really interesting opportunity for them. But what do you think of some of these alternative ways to kind of own a piece of real estate, whether it's online platforms to buy parts of homes or even just investing in a REIT index fund as an alternative to buying rental property? How do you think of those as options? I think a REIT index fund is fine. It's not going to be as low correlation. So oftentimes when you're diversifying a portfolio, you want low correlation assets, meaning that as one asset class moves, you want to be in different asset classes that don't move in tandem with that one given asset class. So if equities are moving in one direction, you want other asset classes within your your overall portfolio that aren't necessarily moving hand in hand with the way that equities are. When you own specific individual pieces of property, you have what is essentially a hybrid between a business and an investment. You know, you have direct managerial authority over that piece of property. You get to make the decisions around it and it has low correlation to other aspects, other elements of your portfolio. If you have a REIT, there's greater correlation between that REIT and the overall equities, greater than if you were to own properties directly yourself. That said, I'm a much bigger fan of REITs than I am these crowdsourced investing platforms. The reason that I don't like crowdsourced investing is that it is fundamentally the actively managed mutual fund 
of real estate, right? If you're picking an actively managed mutual fund, and I don't recommend that people do that, but if you were to do that, then your job is to pick an excellent fund manager. And having this the knowledge and the level of due diligence to be able to pick an amazing fund manager is itself a skill, right? There are people in the finance industry whose sole career is picking good managers. So what makes you think that you can do that better? And to be more specific or more clear about what I'm talking about, if you look at some of these crowdfunded real estate investing platforms, they might say, hey, look, check this out. Here's a 250-unit apartment complex in Gainesville, Florida. And here is a commercial shopping center in Raleigh, North Carolina, right? How do you, as an individual investor, know anything about the location of that apartment complex in Gainesville or that commercial shopping center in Raleigh? Like, how do you understand the location? How do you understand whether or not it's a good idea? How well do you understand the people who are managing that project? How good of a job do they do at managing said project? You know, there's a ton of due diligence that you yourself would need to do in order to know that that is a viable investment. And yet so many people believe that a crowdsource platform absolves them of due diligence. It's like a get out of due diligence free card. So I know a lot of times when people think about getting into this and and whether it's passive income like real estate or starting a company, the most often heard uh, complaint or, or kind of objection is that people don't have enough time. And mm. I've thought about this a lot because I I kind of have struggled with valuing my own time. And I know it's something that you have spent time thinking about and, and trying to kind of get over as well. So how do you think people can start to value their time more so that they can spend it on the things that they care about, the things that are going to drive that long-term kind of impact on their life? So the best advice that I heard about this came from a writer named Laura Vanderkam, who I know has been a guest on both of our podcasts. And Laura's advice was to first fill your schedule with all of the things that cannot be outsourced. And only after you've done that, do you can you then start to fill your schedule with the things that could be outsourced. So for example, exercise is something that you can't outsource. As much as I would love to pay somebody to run on the treadmill for an hour on my behalf, I, I just can't. I, like, hey, can you can you weight lift on my behalf? <laughs> that would be great, right? by the way. I would love yeah. to be able to do that. Exactly. But, you know, exercise can't be outsourced. Sleep cannot be outsourced. Calling your mom cannot be outsourced, right? So you first fill your schedule with all of those activities. And only after you filled your schedule with that do you then take a look at everything else that you could potentially delegate and ask the question, what of this should I delegate? What of this should I just straight up eliminate? And what of this should I actually do? Is there a way you found to get more comfortable with spending money on things that save you time? I know for me, I go back to all these examples like, well, I'd rather drive an extra 30 minutes to get this thing that's $5 cheaper. And that's a terrible use of my time. But I've just always struggled. And no matter how much I divide my salary into hours, it still makes it very difficult to 
pay someone to do something that you could otherwise do yourself. And it almost seems at odds with the idea of saving. Right, right, exactly. So I've struggled with this a lot because it, it used to be many years ago when I first started hiring and, and delegating, I kept telling myself, if only I were more productive, if only I put in more hours, if only I was more productive during the hours that I worked, right? Couldn't I save this money? There's so many people online who will say, yeah, but your hourly rate is, you know, X. Like, let's say your hourly rate is, I don't know, $100 an hour. And so if you can pay somebody $30 an hour to do this thing, well, your time is valued at 100 an hour, blah, 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 blah. Except that I'm aware of all of the hours that I am unloading the dishwasher. I'm aware of all of the hours that I'm clipping my toenails, right? Like, I'm aware of all of the hours that I'm not actively making that money. And so when you take that to its logical conclusion, right, then it, it feels as though like, well, geez, if I just cut back on like clipping the clipping my toenails hours, I, I could I could do it all. And so I've I've learned not to try to take that line to its logical conclusion, because then you end up in these ex like in a logical ex extreme a logically extreme situation, I've learned instead to put boundaries around the number of hours that I am willing to theoretically work. So I might say, hey, I'm willing to work a maximum of 45 or 50 hours a week. What can I do within that container? And everything has to fit inside of that container. And if it doesn't fit in that container, then it, it has to be either delegated or eliminated. Yeah, one thing I've realized thinking through delegation, and this is a recent discovery, is there are things that you might think are wildly expensive to delegate that maybe aren't. And so my wife and I were talking about what's something in our week that is taking up a lot of time and preventing us from spending it on other things. And we realized that now that we started eating with our daughter, who's only 12 months old, we're spending a lot of time trying to get dinner ready for her meal time, which was 5.30. And we were like, gosh, I'm sure it would be so expensive to hire a chef to come into our house and cook for us every night. And the short answer is, yeah, it's really expensive to hire a chef to come in for a couple hours every night and cook for you. What it turns out it's not as expensive to do is hire someone who's not a professional chef, but who cooks just like I cook. And They'll prepare your entire week of meals in advance and bring them over one day of the week, put them in your fridge, and then you just have to either reheat or throw something in the oven. And the difference in that ends up being far less expensive than ordering out, much more control over health. In fact, I think in advance, I may make much healthier decisions. So mm -hmm. I'm actually eating healthier than I normally would be and not spending that time but at first glance, I thought it was impossible because it would cost, you know, thousands of dollars to have someone cook every meal. And I love to cook, but it became a chore to have to cook by 530 every night. And it wasn't as enjoyable. So I just challenge you, if you think there are things that you want to delegate and you don't think it's possible, for us, it was the difference between searching online for private chef and meal prep. And it turns out mm -hmm. that when you search for meal prep, you find something far less expensive than private chef. So... I think there are ways to delegate your time that you might not have expected. Right, right, exactly. So I'm curious, and this is a total non sequitur, but 
In the email that you sent me when we set up this interview, you mentioned that you flew to Egypt on a one-way ticket. I did the same, and you're the first person I know, other than my travel companions, to also fly to Egypt on a one-way ticket. Tell me about that. Yeah, so one of the most exciting things uh, about talking to you is that I feel like there are these weird things that the more I researched your background were very similar. So so just to give everyone a, a full long story, we've both spent time in our lives worried about being able to make money in the future. We mm-hmm. both uh, went to a state school in Colorado. We both traveled the world from 2009 to 2010, mostly staying in really, really inexpensive countries. And as you mentioned, we both started with a one-way ticket to Egypt. Now, I think I'm going to disappoint you with this answer, but my wife and I decided we're going to take a trip around the world. Where do we start? What do we do? And we're like, wow, it is really cheap to go to Cairo. Let's go to Cairo. Mm, And so we bought this one-way ticket to Cairo. And about a week before, I was talking to someone and they said, you know what would be really cool? I read this book about traveling overland from South Africa all the way through Africa up to Egypt. And I thought, wow, "Wow, that's what I want to do. And Then they asked, well, okay, what are you going to do after that? And I said, well, I also want to go through the Middle East and we want to go to India. And they said, well, you're going the wrong way. So about a week before we took off on our one-way ticket to Cairo, we were like, we need to start at the other end. So we bought another ticket, but it turns out that the market for flying internationally within Africa is almost exclusively business travelers. And Mm -hmm. so it is incredibly expensive. So the, we found a cheap flight going from Cairo through Kenya down to South Africa, and we bought that, but it left the next day. So we started the trip in Cairo. I visited a friend who I'd worked with who happened to live in Cairo for a day. Maybe it was two days. We mm-hmm. quickly uh, went down to South Africa. We actually started in Cape Town, and we worked our way overland all the way back up to Cairo with the exception that we tried so hard to get a visa to go to Sudan and couldn't. And so Mm. we ended up having to buy a ticket from Uganda back up to Egypt. Wow. How long did that trip take? And what were you driving? So we were actually taking mostly trains. So we, Mm. we started in South Africa. We went on a forum on the internet and met two Swedish grad students who were about to start medical like a medical externship at a hospital in South Africa. And the four of us rented a car and made it all the way up to Zambia. They came Mm -hmm. back and we took a 52-hour train ride through Tanzania, which if anyone ever has time on their hands in Africa, the Tazara train was like the coolest experience because it basically goes through the middle of Tanzania, places you never would go on a car, And the train stops randomly. Sometimes it breaks down and you've got to wait for them to fix something. But you get to see a side of Africa that it would take hours and hours to drive to. And and mostly trained around buses and everything and then finally had to fly. The whole trip was about eight months. And I I think we did it on about $30 a day. So about a thousand bucks a month. And it was, you know, one of those amazing things that you never get the opportunity to do until you force yourself to do it. And I'm so glad we did back then. That's awesome. You know, those stories about your mom's life that you never get tired of hearing. Sometimes they're funny, sometimes more sentimental, and sometimes they just highlight how much you have in common. Like for me, 
It's when my mom talks about programming mainframe computers in COBOL before I was even born. So for this Mother's Day, I have to tell you about a perfect gift to help you capture and preserve all those amazing stories and memories for years to come. It's called StoryWorth. I've given it as a gift multiple times. It's awesome, and they are also one of our sponsors today. Here's how it works. Every week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question that you get to help pick, like what's the bravest thing you've ever done or where's the farthest you've ever traveled, and they just just need to reply to that email with a story. Long or short, doesn't matter. Then, after a year, StoryWorth compiles all those stories and photos into a beautiful keepsake hardcover book that I am excited we now have a few of in our family, and they'll last for generations. StoryWorth really is an amazing gift, which is probably why they've been trusted with millions of stories from customers over the past decade. So, give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift you'll all cherish for years. StoryWorth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to allthehacks.com slash storyworth. That's allthehacks.com slash storyworth to save $10 on your first purchase. What's the best way to help you and your finances thrive? The answer can be overwhelming with all the financial misinformation out there. So I want to talk about an amazing resource, the NerdWallet Smart Money Podcast, where every week, NerdWallet's in-house experts and financial journalists set things straight and help you make smart decisions with your money. The nerds have already helped me get smarter about saving money on groceries, avoiding some of the latest financial scams, and boosting my credit score since it's actually been going a little bit up and a little bit more down lately as I've been taking advantage of a few recent credit card offers. They also explain the real impact that the latest financial headlines could have on your life so you'll get the clarity you need to make smart decisions with confidence. Weekly financial check-ins with smart money help you spend more time doing what matters and less time worrying about what doesn't. Let NerdWallet's trusted experts untangle today's web of financial misinformation. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. I just want to thank you, Quick, for listening to and supporting the show. Your support is what keeps this show going. To get all of the URLs, codes, deals, and discounts from our partners, you can go to allthehacks.com slash deals. So please consider supporting those who support us. Well, so for context and for people listening, so as you mentioned, this is something that we have in common. I also traveled. I traveled for 27 months from 2008 to 2010, visited 17 countries over the span of 27 months, starting with a one-way ticket to Cairo, just as you did. And what did you learn? What was your kind of macro takeaway from doing that? Ooh, geez. You know, the idea of afford anything actually came to me when I was in Indonesia. I don't think I've ever told anyone that before. You heard it here first on this podcast. But the, the actual phrase afford anything came in Bali. I was thinking through what I wanted to do next because I had just, in 2008, I quit the newspaper And that was a really uh, ballsy move. Like, who voluntarily quits a declining industry during a recession? Absolutely no one. And so everyone told me that I was committing career suicide, that I would never get a job again. And in, in hindsight, they were right. I never did get a job again. And it was during that trip that I spent a lot of time thinking about what I wanted to do next. You know, I had a sense I was going to be a, a freelance writer, but I also knew that I wanted to build an asset There's a difference between writing for other people's publications versus starting your own publication or starting your own platform. And so I had a sense that there was an asset, there was a platform, a publication that I wanted to to create. And the name Afford Anything came to me during that trip. That's amazing. 
I think travel is something that kind of opens your eyes, changes your perspective in so many ways that if you're lacking creativity in your life, I think there's nothing more inspiring than visiting a place you've never been, meeting people you don't know that speak a different language and and seeing where that takes you and changes your state of being and state of mind. Yeah, absolutely. I think that so many people feel like they can't take a trip like that. And and to be clear, 27 months is a very long time. (laughs) Even my eight-month trip, everyone I know thought was an incredibly long time. But people think that you can't do that. You have to quit your job and, and go on career suicide. And it's just not possible until you retire. But I've heard you say something that I don't think anyone else has said, mini retirements, semi retirements. What is that? And how could someone do this in their 30s, in their 40s or or 50s? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. There's, there is this assumption. It's a very binary, all or nothing thinking type of mentality where you're either working or you're not, right? You're, you're either in your career or you are fully retired. I think that's a, an old and outdated model. And so many, let's first, I'll start by defining the difference between a mini retirement versus a semi retirement. A mini retirement is essentially a sabbatical. You take a designated period of time off of work. It could be, three months, six months, eight months, as you did. So you take a limited period of time away from work and you either do that by taking a leave of absence from your employer or you do it when you are between jobs, between employment, or if you run your own business, you set up the systems, put the team in place, get everything running to such an extent that your business can operate independently of you for a temporary period of time. So that is what a mini retirement is. Semi-retirement is different. Semi-retirement is where you go on maintenance mode. So you're tech, you're technically still checking in, but you're not working full days. You're doing just enough to keep your current projects alive, but not enough to have them grow. I've spent a lot of time, especially in the last 10 years, oscillating between periods of intense growth where I'm parked at home and focused on growing my business and periods of where what I call maintenance mode, where I'm intentionally not growing and I'm in that semi-retired state. And during that time, I'm off gallivanting in Slovenia or Croatia or, you know, I've been to Ecuador five times in the last couple of years. I've, you know, I'm, I'm off elsewhere doing something fun. Not to say work isn't fun, but, you know, something different. And so that's the distinction between a mini mini retirement versus semi-retirement. And depending on your situation, there will be phases of your life where one or the other is better or more applicable. When I took that 27-month trip, I had just quit working at a newspaper. And so given that I was between jobs, that was an ideal time to just take that mini retirement, take a 27-month break and say, I'm going to travel the world full-time for over two years. And I mostly lived off of savings that entire time. I did a little bit of freelancing, but I worked fewer than five hours a week. If that's not in the cards, and particularly if you run your own business, the semi-retire model is is a fantastic one. You know, you might check in on Slack an hour a day. You do just enough to make sure that you're not the bottleneck and no more. And that allows everything to continue running stateside while you're often in Iceland or, you know, Argentina or wherever you choose to be. Yeah, I think for people who've only ever taken a trip for a week or two weeks, it feels like, man, if you were working 
a few hours a day or, or even a few hours a week, it would really detract from the entire experience. But if you've never taken a trip for a month or spent the whole two weeks in one place, what happens is there's actually more downtime. And so Mm -hmm. I think whether you run your own business or even if you uh, work for a company, if you could find a a period of time where it would be okay for you to not put in everything, if you you work in sales, it's not at the end of the quarter, but it's a time where you could kind of go on work maintenance mode, as you said, and take a longer trip, you can get the same number of things done and you can, you know, see all the sites, meet all the people, eat all the foods, but still be able to get some work done and, and not necessarily have to take it all off. And people often think they could never do that because it's so expensive. But if you look at the cost to travel, the flights are often the biggest piece. And so if you're going somewhere for twice as long, it doesn't cost twice as much. And in many cases, renting an Airbnb for a month might be the same as renting a hotel for a week or a week and a half. So with all the flexibility that COVID has given many people with remote work, I would encourage people who haven't ever taken a longer trip to maybe consider it and not feel like it's something you have to take an entire month off to do. Right. Well, and the thing is, longer trips are so economically efficient because particularly if you're taking a trip that's long enough that you can either rent out your home or if if you are a renter yourself, do it at the end of your lease. Just don't renew your lease. Put all your stuff in storage and then go, you know, be a full-time traveler for a little while. If you style it that way, then fundamentally, you're simply paying the cost of living in a different location. You know, if you're just taking a vacation, you're paying for two different lives. You're paying for your normal life and then you're also paying for your hotel in some other location, right? So you're essentially paying two rents during that time. If you take a longer trip, you're only paying for one life. And it's that one life that you have while you are riding the Trans-Siberian Railroad from Russia into Mongolia. And, and when you do that, then you compress your cost of living to only the costs incurred when you travel. And oftentimes it's about the same or in some cases even cheaper than your cost of living in the U.S. Yeah. When we left for eight months, we rented our apartment out and we rented it out furnished because we had all this furniture and we actually got more than our monthly rent. And because (laughs) we were in all these kind of much less expensive countries, I won't say it paid for the whole trip, but it certainly paid for a good part of the trip because we were actually making money at home. So yeah, if you aren't paying two rents, as you said, the trip can be a lot cheaper. Exactly. Uh, So sticking within the theme of the show, all the hacks, you know, whether it's travel or life or anything you've learned, are there things that are your favorite tips, mindset shifts, tricks to either save money or just be happier in your life and traveling that you want to share? Mindset. Ooh. I left it open because because it's it's all the hacks. It's it's really take it anywhere you want. It's a, that's a very broad question. Okay, mindset when it comes to happiness, I think the single biggest shift for me has been understanding that basically nothing matters and everything will be fine. Like when you get to the point where just nothing really phases you and you're not caught up in a lot of the small stuff that you used to think was important. I worried that that kind of cavalier attitude would make me less ambitious, make me less of a go-getter at work. 
I find it actually makes me more productive because I realize that there are only a few decisions that I make when I say a few, like a couple a year that are big with a capital B decisions and everything else is like details. And I think mindset wise, once I really stopped worrying about the details and just, yeah, do what you can, but don't really sweat it. It decreases my stress, increases my happiness. And I don't think it, you know, negatively affects my performance. It's either neutral or positive in, in terms of performance. I like it. One of my favorite savings hacks is being grateful. So much of the time, people frame savings as deprivation. You know, oh, I couldn't have this amazing pair of shoes or I chose not to have this fantastic restaurant meal, so I'm depriving myself, right? But if we reframe that thought and recognize how much we already have, I mean, everyone listening to this podcast has the ability to listen to a podcast, right? We've got a smartphone and access to the internet. On a global scale, everyone listening to this podcast is among the globally richest people in the world. And to go back to our conversation about traveling, travel certainly brings home just how wealthy, how relatively wealthy we are compared to the bottom billion. When we deeply internalize that, it makes it very easy to not want a heck of a lot more because we already have so much. And then that means that saving money or reducing spending is no longer an act of deprivation. It's an act of acknowledging, hey, I'm good. I don't need any more. I've got more than enough already. And are there habits to kind of embrace that grateful attitude that you like? I don't know if traveling would be considered a habit, but I certainly think that traveling, particularly to lesser developed areas, you know, I, I'm not just talking about traveling to Europe, traveling to, to Bangladesh, traveling to Sri Lanka, traveling to Nepal, which is where I was born. I think that's really important to serve as a continual reminder. I think, I think having some involvement in philanthropy and charity work in volunteering i think that also is a grounding and is a reminder of the fact that we don't need to be endlessly searching for more people have talked about a gratitude practice i'm i go in and out of that habit i won't claim that that's a habit that i have been able to consistently stick to but the from what i have heard there is research that backs that a gratitude practice a, a daily practice of writing down one to three things that you're grateful for can be effective at retraining your brain to see such details and, and be to bring those details to the, the forefront of your cognition. Yeah, I think I'm in a, a similar boat where, you know, one Thanksgiving, someone started going around the, the table talking about what they were grateful for. And it, it felt like such a great practice. It was like, let's keep that up a little bit. And, and it fades away and comes back. And I think it's helpful, but I've also found it hard to make it a daily habit. Was it you that has a hack for how to make it easier to build a new habit? Yeah. So there's a few. One is uh, habit stacking. So take an existing habit that you currently have and stack it onto that habit. So for example, do it right after you brush your teeth in the morning. Or for me, coffee is like a daily non-negotiable. 
So if I'm trying to form a morning habit, linking it to my coffee habit, because I know I'm never going to forget to brew a cup of coffee. So anything that's linked or chained to that has a much higher um, probability of sticking. So that's one way that uh, sort of one one hack around habit building. Building habits that have some element of immediate gratification. So there's a famous study in which the people who started, who invented Febreze, they were trying to figure out why nobody would use that product. And it was because Febreze eliminated odors, but there was no immediate gratification to spraying the bottle. There was no immediate scent that people perceived. And because people didn't perceive that immediate gratification, the habit didn't stick. And so they artificially went back and added odors that are unnecessary for the efficacy of the product so that people would then get an immediate result from spraying the bottle, which helped in habit formation. And so once I learned that, I started thinking through how I can incorporate some element of immediate gratification into any habit that I'm trying to build particularly if it's a habit that has a good long-term effect, but doesn't have an immediate short-term effect. So lighting a candle at a time when I do a monthly financial review, right? Lighting a candle or eating some chocolate at the time that I'm doing that, now I'm, I'm tethering these things that have like immediate sensory benefit with reviewing the spreadsheet for the month. And so I'm creating immediate gratification in that very act. I used to ask my wife to help contribute towards our annual analysis. And it was like, can we go into Mint and recategorize all of our transactions to figure out where we spend money? And fortunately, we've stopped doing that both because it was too much time and it just wasn't wasn't as useful. But I think if I had gone back in time and, and maybe lit a nice candle and brought in a bar of chocolate, I feel like that wouldn't have had such a horrible memory in, in my wife's mind thinking about having to go through and do that. So mm. I wish I could go back and, and do that, but I will definitely use that tip in the future. Mm. I, I have a friend who uh, he and his wife have a weekly money meeting and they always do it over wine. Nice. Yeah, I think yeah. anything over wine can make make things good unless you go overboard and have to wake up early. <laughs> exactly. Great. This was incredible. I really appreciate you being here. Any last things you want to share with, with anyone listening? Well, I guess the, the final thing that I would share with anyone listening is given the, the wide range of topics that we've covered, what one thing resonated with you and how do you translate that into something actionable? You know, whether it's in the arena of saving money, earning more, starting a side hustle, negotiating for a new position at work or, or negotiating for a raise, um, planning a mini retirement, like we've talked about such a wide array of things. What one thing stood out to you and what one action will you take as a result of having listened to this? That's the question that I would leave to the listener. Yeah. And if you if you have that, please share it with me, email, Twitter, or share it with Paula. Paula, where can people find you online and share things with you? So I would encourage everyone listening to open your favorite podcast player, which you're already using to listen to this show, and uh, go follow the Afford Anything podcast. So that's my podcast. It's uh, what I spend a lot of my time honing. And the, the Afford Anything podcast is the number one way that you can hear more about my ideas, the, the you know everything ranging from managing your money to living a better life. 
So Afford Anything Podcast is where you find me. I've got a free ebook called Escape that you can download at affordanything.com slash escape. And that's all about escaping the nine to five, which we've talked about as a metaphor and living a better life. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me on the show. That's a wrap for this week's episode of All the Hacks. Thank you so much for listening. As I mentioned last week, we'll be doing a listener mailbag episode soon. So if you have any questions you'd like me to tackle or hacks to share with our audience, please send them to chris at allthehacks.com or I'm at Hutchins on Twitter. Also, if you tuned in to episode nine with Ramit, do you remember him challenging me to take a vacation with an unlimited budget? Well, it was too last minute for him to plan that vacation, but I ended up trying to follow his advice on a trip to Greece where I am right now. So how'd I do? Well, from the outside, pretty good. We flew in business class and we're staying at some incredible five-star resorts. That said, I paid for coach flights and upgraded and we booked some of the hotels on points. So from that regard, maybe I failed to not optimize. However, my loss might be your gain. So if you have any questions about how to use your points and miles for an incredible vacation, just send me an email or find me on Twitter and I'll do my best to help out. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you next week.